All right, would you open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 to 5? This is the word of the Lord. It is eternally true. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not even exist among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you were assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, we spent a couple of weeks on this, and last week I focused on the fact that postmoderns, in other words, you and I today in our culture, we hate division, we hate distinctions, we try to blur everything, and we try to make everything about us. We are incapable of saying no to relational closeness for the sake of truth. And so this week I want to focus on something a little bit different about this text. And that is I want to focus on the issue of authority in the church, the importance of the church, and the fact that the church is an institution with officers who have been delegated by God that authority to do something, but that their authority depends entirely upon the congregation to, to bear the weight. All right. Now let's go through this and make a few comments about verse by verse, and then uh, we'll go back to uh, this matter of authority and the importance of the church congregation for, uh, for exercising authority. It's actually reported, and so uh, what this means is, you know, it's common knowledge. Everybody knows. It's actually, I mean, everybody, there's no question. In other words, this is a situation where you don't have to call a meeting, have the elders sit in a room, call in witnesses, but it's just known. No question, it's actually reported that there is immorality, porneia, same word that Jesus says, except for porneia, any man that divorces his wife, among you, not the world, but the church, and a particular kind of immorality that doesn't even exist among the Gentiles. In other words, the Gentiles are without the word of God. The Gentiles have not had God reveal his law to them, but even they don't do this, that a man has his father's wife. The way it's constructed, it's clear that this is his uh, stepmother, not his real mother. And he has her, well, this is the term for marriage, not just sex, but marriage. So he's married to his stepmother, all right? We don't know the circumstances, but we know that it was unbelievably horrible because the Apostle Paul says even among the Gentiles, they don't do this. Now, is it true that there was no absolutely no mention of this among the Gentiles at the time. Now, you'll find it in some of the literature at the time, pagan literature, you'll find mention of this, but it's horrendous. All right? This is something that is so well known in the church that he can write and say it's actually reported. All right? 
Then he says, verse 2, you have become arrogant and have not mourned. In other words, they're very proud of their spirituality. What a wonderful description of the evangelical church today. So cocksure that everybody has a relationship to Jesus and everybody's a Christian and, and you know, very, very, very proud of our uh, spirituality, all of us. We're very proud, all right? Well, this is like the Corinthians. You've become arrogant and have not mourned instead. Well, why would they mourn? They would mourn because one of their own number has fallen into such a horrible sin, confessing faith in Jesus Christ. One of their own number has fallen into such a horrible sin that it places his soul in eternal jeopardy. And of course, the church, the whole church has been corrupted by this. And of course, the name of Jesus Christ is dishonored. But that doesn't matter to them. They're arrogant. They're proud. They're cocky. They have a relationship with Jesus. They're evangelicals. You become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that, so the mourning should have led, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. So they're proud when what they should have done is mourned over it and put the man out from their number. That's what they should have done, but instead they're proud. So the Apostle Paul, being a good father of the household, and you need to think of your elders and your pastors as fathers of the household of faith, the pillar and foundation of truth, the church of the living God. Think of your elders and pastors as fathers. So the Apostle Paul now summons up his authority. All right? Can you feel him? He's like, he... All right, you feel it? All right. And he says, for I on my part. Now you know you're dealing with father, not daddy, father. For I on my part, though absent in body, (laughs) all right, I'm not there, but can you picture me? Present in spirit. And that's not just, you know, I have you on my mind. When I woke up this morning, you were on my mind. That's not what he's talking about. Absent in body, but present in spirit. This is, this is weighty. The Spirit of God is with him. The Spirit of God is on him. The Spirit of God is on the church. Present in spirit. Have already judged him. And we're going to come back to this issue of judge because Bible-believing Christians in this country today only know one verse that talks about judgment, and it's the verse that says, Judge not, lest ye be judged. And the rest of this chapter is a wonderful, wonderful opening up of the concept of judging and when it's appropriate and when it's not. It's very interesting, and we'll get into this in a few weeks, it's very interesting that in the church today, what we always do is ask our pastors to preach sermons judging the world, but never to judge the church. The very opposite of what scripture commands. Let judgment begin and let it begin in the house of God. And so you'll have preachers that will get up and talk about Washington, talk about Walt Disney, talk about movies, talk about all this stuff, but somehow never bring it to bear on those who profess the name of Christ standing, sitting right in front of him. And the Apostle Paul says in the later part of this chapter that we're not to judge those in the world, but are we not to judge those in the church? Well, he says here, for I am my part that absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him. Who has so committed this? As though I were present. So you see him going from 
pleading and telling to all of a sudden commanding. I'm there, it's true, not my body, but I've judged him, and now listen to me. As if I were present. He says, verse 4, in the name of our Lord Jesus. Remember what it says in Philippians? That at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. We, so often I get emails, and I have people send me things that use the name of Jesus, typically, or the name of God, to make humor. And I've said this so often, but I'm going to say it again. Do not use the name of Jesus Christ. Do not use the name of God for anything that is profane, that is humorous, that is a joke. That's what the Bible means when it says, don't take the name of the Lord our God in vain. God's name is not to be taken in vain. And it, it got, the name of God is not something for you to use for humor. Okay? So if you tell a joke or send me a joke by email or something that, that has the name of God used to get me to laugh, I don't appreciate it, okay? Because it's a violation of the honor and glory of the name of God. At the name of Jesus, what? Everybody will laugh. No. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. The name of God is unbelievably authoritative and powerful. And so this is why he says, For I am my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this, as though I were present in the name of our Lord Jesus. In other words, summoning up the authority of the head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. In the, th- the authority of the name of our Lord Jesus. When you are assembled... In other words, this is not something given to the pastor, given to the elders in a private room to do. But when you, the congregation, are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, in the name of our Lord Jesus, with the power of the Lord Jesus. So, (laughs) this is very, very intense. Do you understand that? In the name, with the power, I'm there, says the Apostle Paul. I have decided, past tense, it's already done, I've decided, to what? To deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. So what he's saying is, this should have been done a long time ago. All right, now listen to me. I'm I'm not there physically, I am there spirit. In the name of Jesus, with the power of Jesus Christ, hand the man over. When you're assembled, hand the man over to Satan. All right. For the destruction of his flesh. Now, what does it mean for the destruction of his flesh? All through church history, there's been a sort of 50-50 division among Bible students as to what the destruction of his flesh means. About half the students say that it means excommunication, removing him from the midst of the, the assembly, expelling him. And about half of them say that it means giving him over to physical suffering, to sickness and physical suffering, all right? And Augustine's on the side of physical suffering, and Calvin's on the side of simple excommunication, all right? So I'm not going to decide which it is. (laughs) 
I don't want to choose. It's like when I asked Heather when she was a little girl, I said, Heather, who do you like more, mommy or daddy? And she looked at me and she looked at her mother and she said, that's a bad question. <laughs> that's how I feel right now between Calvin and Augustine. It's a bad question. <laughs> All right. And so whatever it is, we know what the goal is. I think it's clear it is excommunication. Whether for the destruction of the flesh includes with excommunication, we know it's excommunication because he says expel, right? Whether it includes physical suffering, we know that in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says that some of them living in glaring sin, coming to the Lord's Supper because they take the Lord's Supper, living in ongoing besetting sin, some of them are sick and others have died, Right? We know because Ananias and Sapphira were struck dead for lying to the church, because lying to the church was lying to the Holy Spirit. Right? We know that in Revelation it talks about some adultery leading to suffering and sickness and death. All right? I will you know, cast you on the bed. We know that every time we get sick... We always examine our hearts to see if God has sent that sickness to us as a warning because we've grown calloused in our conscience and are refusing to repent, right? All of us do that, right? We know that anytime bad things happen to us, we don't go off into la-la land and think that God's just powerless to keep those things from us. We assume that God, if his eye is on the sparrow, it's on us, and he knows every hair on our head. This last week I had a medical procedure, an examination, and as I was lying there on the gurney, I was thinking to myself that God has numbered every hair on my head, and I found this little voice inside of myself saying, can it be, you know, can God really know how many hairs are on my head and every other person that's ever lived? And if he knows how many hairs I have, he knows absolutely everything about my body because I don't give a rip about my hair. Except that sometimes it gets, you know, it falls on, you know, my computer screen and I have to wipe it off. You know, that's about the most, and yet God knows every single hair. He knows when one drops. And so... I do not believe that it would be wrong to make the point that when we hand someone over to Satan, that often what Satan does is bring torments to us that are physical under God's permissive hand. And I don't think it's wrong for anybody to immediately examine their hearts and their consciences when they have any kind of catastrophe to them, to their family, to their body. We should never think that God is disconnected and simply an observer of the things that come to us, right? Nevertheless, what we do know here are two things. Number one, it's the flesh that is to be destroyed. And so the seed of corruption, and we know that Satan is the one who will be destroying the flesh, We know that it's a result of being delivered by the church to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. And we know what the goal is. Because it then says, so that, so here's the goal, his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. 
So it's a redemptive act for them to give him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved, right? Now that's the text. Now, what do we need today? Well, in an unusual way on this sermon, I've had difficulty, and the reason is that this is so, 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 so unbelievably pertinent to my work that I sort of melted down this morning. I came over to work, and I... Usually, if I'm over here to work, I'm just typing, 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 typing until the last minute, and then it's time to preach. But this morning, I just sat at my desk, and I'm just trying to think how to communicate this to you. Um, You've heard me say that the thing that causes more people to reject this body of believers, this church, is the fact that we fence the table. And people just are absolutely furious that we fence the table. And you go, fence the table? What on earth? You take out a sword and on guard, you know? No, no, no. I mean, fence, you know? Uh, Hurricane fence, you know, a fence. So, like, when I fence the table, I'm behind it, but it's like I'm standing in front of it going like this. That's what I mean, to fence the table, okay? And how do we fence it? Well, many of you have been here for a long time. Some of you haven't. The way we fence it is every single time I serve communion, I say that you are not allowed to come to this table unless you are a member in good standing of a Bible-believing church. doesn't have to be this church. can be any church. You may not come to this table and eat at this table unless you are under the authority of elders of a Bible-believing church. And people have a fit. Absolute fit. How could you do this? And I have said time without, times without number. The the table of our Lord does not belong to individual Christians. It belongs to the church. And God has appointed officers over the church to guard the table and to guard the souls who do not realize the terrible danger They would be, and if they come to this table, and profane it. And so later in 1 Corinthians, we find out in Corinth, there were people who came to the table with serious sin as Christians. They profaned the table by coming to it dirty. They dragged the body and blood of our Lord through the mud with their sin. And so... Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, this is why some of you are sick and others have died. Fallen asleep means died. And so, the issue is not that God appoints elders so that the elders can sit in the room and have people bring them food. Which, you know, we do have that happen. When we have elders meetings, inevitably... Uh, One of the wonderful people in that room, either he or his wife, brings us food. I don't know where it comes from. I don't think anybody keeps a schedule of it, but, you know, it's wonderful. So we do sit in the room and people bring us food. But that's not the point. It's not so that when I walk down the hall, you know, you'll say, oh, Pastor Bailey, Pastor Bailey. You know, give it up. That's not 
It's not why we're here. The elders don't want you bowing. The elders don't want you patting them on the back and saying what excellent men they are. What the elders want is the honor of Christ protected, the honor of this church protected. They don't want leaven spreading through the whole loaf here, and they don't want you getting sick and dying because you come to this table when you shouldn't. Now, really, people, is that so hard to understand? And you say, no, I like that. Good, okay. Then that's why you have to be members of a church. Because if you're not a member of a church, there's no elder taking care of you. And you say, oh, no, my dad's a pastor. And I say to you, (laughs) I don't know where I'd be without the elders of this church disciplining my children. And you go, oh, come on, they don't do that. And I say, trust me. (laughs) I just left a conversation about the discipline of one of my children in an office just before I walked in here. And you say, well, my grandmother was godly. And I say, that's wonderful. But your grandmother isn't here today or next week when we have the Lord's Supper. And she's not warning you. Generally, what grandmothers do is give you candy. And then pray when you're gone. Okay? And you say, well, I go to the R.C. Sproul Ligonier Conferences. I say, you know, I I know R.C. and his wife, Vesta, and I think they're wonderful people, but the one thing R.C. is not is your pastor. He is doing absolutely nothing at Ligonier that is personally applicable from his face to you, from his mouth to yours, your body, his body. He's downloading like a hard drive. Into your brain. He's got like a tube going in the back of your head. And if your brain isn't full yet, he'll put more in. That's R.C. Sproul. And you go, well, um, I'm a part of Campus Crusade. I say, hey, Campus Crusade has a principle. They won't discipline you. They won't do the sacraments. So they don't. They don't cover you with authority. And you go, well, yeah, but I mean, I do have somebody discipling me. I say, where? And you say, well, not here, over there. And I say, in a church? You say, no. I say, well, okay, that's my point. Campus Crusade is not a church. They're not taking care of you. They do not give you the meal. If they do, it's a violation of Scripture and they should be disciplined. Why? Well, because the sacraments are given to the church. A few years ago, I was in Africa, in Rwanda, in Kigali. And there was a man who worked for Youth for Christ. And he, I've told this story, some of you have heard it. But this man was (laughs) exactly what you would expect from a man that was on steroids. Um, Built, like, to kill. I mean, just, and of course with black skin, it was all defined beautifully in the sunlight. Muscles and shoulders and torso and just, he was a man. This dude is a specimen. And he's brilliant. And he is a leader. And so there were like 500 people from all these Eastern African countries came to a conference he was hosting. All right? 
And we were there working. I was painting. And then I was told that they wanted me to meet with the pastors and teach them. And so I had shorts on, which was probably wrong, and a t-shirt on. I had some paint on my arms, paint on my legs. And I went over to the pastors, and here was a group of men dressed to the nines. You know, alligator shoes and, you know, just suits, and I mean, just dressed to the nine. I mean, really nice threads. Lots of bling. And here I show up. And they look completely cowed. You know what it means when somebody looks cowed? You know how a dog that you've spoken to like cringes and gets down on the floor and rolls over? That's how these men looked. And so I was trying to figure out what was going on. I knew it wasn't because of me because, if anything, I was insulting them by showing up with no bling on, you know. And then I realized what was going on. Here were 500 people in an assembly hall mesmerized by the authority and leadership of this man who was head of Campus Crusade. I mean, Youth for Christ. All right? And they were there as pastors of tiny little churches, about 12 men, and they could see that they were absolutely impotent. You understand this? All the money all the status, all the power, all the numbers, all the vitality, all everything was completely in the parachurch organization. And for some reason, they'd shown up, they had no authority, no numbers, no money, no nothing. Do you understand that? And furthermore, none of them had a body like he did. None of them were bright like he was. And so thinking about their position and how utterly humiliated they were, but they were pastors. They were officers of the church of Jesus Christ. They were shepherds. They had been ordained to the gospel ministry of the word and sacrament. And they were cowed, and they were absolutely nothing. So I looked at them all, and after exchanging respects to them and them to me, I said to them, let me ask you a question. As pastors, what do you have? And then I named the man. I said, as pastors, what do you have that he doesn't have? And of course, you could hear the singing and the laughing of hundreds and hundreds coming right out of the building. And there they were, out in the blaring, glaring sun, seated on little chairs in a circle with me, with shorts and a t-shirt and paint all over me. I said, what do you have that he doesn't have? And they nervously started to giggle. Because it was ludicrous. (laughs) All they could see was what he had that they didn't have. They didn't want to answer the question. And so I pushed them. I said, come on, tell me, what do you have that he doesn't have? And there was nothing coming out of them. But I just kept pushing and pushing and pushing. Come on, tell me. And they knew there must be something because I was asking the question, you know. And finally, (laughs) this poor little man, dressed to the nines, with no numbers, no money, no influence, no body, no nothing. Very quietly across 
the circle from me. He says, the sacraments? (laughs) And I said, yes! I won't scare you. I said, yes! You have the sacraments! He cannot administer the sacraments in the name of Jesus Christ. And it was interesting, as you looked, you began to see them sit up. And I said, you are shepherds of the church of Jesus Christ. You have the sacraments. You have the keys of the kingdom. Jesus has said about you, not about him, not about youth for Christ. He has said about you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I have given you the keys of the kingdom. And you're sitting here cowed by him. You're sitting here feeling inferior to him. And you have the sacraments. Sat up straighter. Now my point isn't that, you know, the white guy went to Africa and made the black guys feel better. I don't give a rip about that. My point is, how have we gotten to the point that even in Africa, we have exported this, this, this terrible corruption where the parachurch is everything and the church is nothing. And when the church tries to lift her finger in disciplining her members, the parachurch says, no, 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 you don't. We'll take them. And so what has happened in the last 60, 75 years is that the parachurch organization started out not doing the sacraments, just doing evangelism. But then it began to do the sacraments. You know, a retreat here, a national conference there. It began to do the sacraments. Now what's happened is the church has become the parachurch. And the church is giving up the sacraments. Now, do I mean that they're not having the Lord's Supper? No. They'll still have the Lord's Supper, but there's no fencing at the table. There's no membership. There's no authority. There are no officers. There's no keys. There are no doors. There are no locks. And so the church is aping the parachurch because 500 people are there. And they're singing, and they all have a relationship with Jesus. And they've all prayed to receive him, the sinner's prayer. And they despise the church. And you say, oh, no, they don't. I say, yes, they do. And you say, well, how could you say that? I say, I say that because there's no authority. There's no discipline. And you say, well, you're just jealous. You know, you wish that you were a crusade leader. Every single time I rebuke anything on my blog, I have some idiot write in and say, you're just jealous. It's like, come on, people. I grew up in Wheaton. I was good-looking and intelligent. Do you really think I couldn't have had parachurch leadership if I'd wanted it? Do you know that the first few years of this church, I was head of a parachurch organization and worked with John Piper and R.C. Sproul and all these dudes. And do you know they wanted me to take that job full-time and give up my church? Right? 
I would never do that. In a thousand years, I wouldn't give up the church of Jesus Christ. Why? Because there's nothing like being a shepherd of a flock. There's nothing like it. I get to watch you repent. Can you imagine being R.C. Sproul and having at you once a year? That's all he gets you. It's the only time he even sees you, and then there are thousands. How does he get the joy of the repentance of the people that come to hear him speak? He doesn't get it, people. How does a writer, how does a seminary professor get the joy of repentance? You understand? They can't. They're not pastors. They don't have a flock. But I get to use my rod and staff to comfort you. And then I see you repent. And man, does that give me hope for my own heart. Because when you repent, I repent. That's one of the reasons pastors try not to do discipline and elders. Because we don't really want to repent. But if you're committed to doing discipline, then you're kind of seduced into repenting. (laughs) That's not a good way of putting it, but you know what I'm talking about, all right? In other words, as we see you shed tears for your sin, we shed tears for our sin. That's why Paul says that day and night, with tears, he went from house to house in Ephesus. Why tears? Well, because the apostle Paul repented. He was led into repentance by his people as he led them into repentance. And so I would never give up the church for the parachurch. Never. I would never give up being a shepherd. I'd never give up preaching week after week after week to the flock that I love. I'd never give up the love of a flock for me and my children. Why would I want to do that? And you say, well, because then you could have 5,000. And I say, I I puke on your 5,000. American, it's in their numbers. It's so utterly corrupting of the church of Jesus Christ. As if numbers have anything to do with godliness. Shoot, in the Old Testament, when they counted, did a census, they got judged. But we make a principle out of it and put it on pamphlets and say, that's why you should go listen to this preacher, because he's done a census. (laughs) Now listen. The church is the household of faith. Jesus Christ says that when we do discipline, where two or more are gathered in his name, there he is also. And that's not a velveteen rabbit statement. That is a statement that his authority is there. All right? He has given the officers of his church the power of the keys. And you know what keys are. And he has said... Jesus has said, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Do you understand this? He is the one who has commanded us to discipline you. This is not something we came up with. We don't like to do it. Because it involves hundreds of hours. If you ever have somebody get to the point of formal discipline, it's after hundreds of hours have been spent talking with one another, talking with the person, talking with their mother, talking with their father, talking with their husband, talking with their wife, 
answering phone calls from their relatives who are scandalized that you have rebuked one of their family members. I mean, it goes on and on and on and on and on. We don't enjoy discipline. It is unbelievably difficult to spank your son and then face your wife, who is furious because you spanked your son. Yeah. David's telling me I'm done. And you can tell I just got started. (laughs) So I have to decide what I'm not going to say and what I'm going to say. Listen, let me ask you a question. Do you want your church to discipline you? You remember how in the Old Testament the people were asked whether they'd submit to God and they said yes and then they were asked again? Do you want your church to discipline you? Let me ask you another question. Do you want your church to discipline your husband? The truth is every one of you wives should say yes right now. How else are you going to have a place to appeal? It has to be the church. If your husband is abusing you and your children, you want an authority to step in with your husband because you're under his authority. So now again, let me ask you as wives, do you want the church to discipline your husbands? All right, let me ask you another question. Are you willing to expel the wicked man from your midst? You know what the text said. You know that the text put the weight of it on you as a congregation, right? It's very clear. Remove from your midst, and then notice in verse 4, when you are what? Are we assembled? Okay. So what? Is the pastor the one that we pay to be pious to prove it doesn't pay to be pious? Am I supposed to do the discipline so that you don't have to think about it, so that you don't have to know about it? How does discipline happen without the support of the congregation in that discipline? In this text, look at it. When you're assembled, how do we do discipline without the support of the congregation? This is how I'm going to end. Here's the problem in Bloomington, that I know this is the problem. We have many people in Bloomington who have absolutely defied Jesus Christ. You know their names. The elders have disciplined them. And then what's happened is when you see them at Sportsplex, when you see them at the restaurant at Kroger, when you go to school at Lighthouse and you pass them in the parking lot, you act as if Nobody told you anything about it. And it's not your job to enforce the discipline of the elders. But look at the text. It says, when you are assembled. In other words, the only thing that God has given pastors and elders is moral suasion. He has not given us guns to shoot you. He has not given us rods to beat you. He's not given us... uh, Uh, you know, the only thing he's given us is the ability of saying things to you and having you respond in your soul and your heart. That's it. It's the only authority we have. 
God is pleased for us to have no authority except moral suasion. And the weight of our moral suasion, when we excommune you, we take you over to that door, shove you out the door, lock the door with the keys he gave us. The only enforcement of that has to be the congregation when they're outside of the church that they enforce what the elders did in the church. Do you understand this? That's what it means, excommune. And so here's what is true of many of you in this congregation. You are like a family where the son comes in and the son sits down in the kitchen and he proceeds to spit at his mother. All right, And the son spits at his mother and then spits at her again and she's in tears but she has to make dinner because her husband's coming home and finally the husband comes home and he looks and there's his son spitting at his wife. And so he says, son, get out of the house. You will not treat my wife that way. And his son says, make me. And so the father, even though he is 57 and overweight, he has God. And he sends that son out of the house. He didn't know how he did it when it's over, but he's out of the house. And he's so tired when it's over that he goes up to his bed to take a nap before dinner. And as soon as he goes upstairs, the mother and the other siblings are all over there at the back deck, and they pull open the little door, you know, and they say, come on in. We'll feed you before he's upstairs in the bedroom. But we know you're hungry, and they feed him, and then all of a sudden they hear steps upstairs. Oh, you better go in the closet because he might come down. But then he comes down, then he goes back up. Come on out again. They feed him some more, and they comb his hair, and they pat his cheek, and they give him gifts, and, and they just absolutely, completely demolish the authority of the head of the home. And funny thing, the son doesn't repent of spitting in his mother's face. Funny thing. She rewards him. As elders of this church, we have no authority. None. You know why? Because you won't enforce it. That's why. You treat people who have rejected the church of Jesus Christ as if, well, I know that you love Jesus. You pray with them. You have Bible studies with them. You talk about Jesus with them. There's absolutely no handing over to Satan done by the body of Christ anymore. It's all on the pastor and the elders, and they have these nasty things in some room, and thank God I don't have to be there. (laughs) And then you see people out in public, and it's like, hail, hearty, fellow, well met. (laughs) And I know it. Do you know that recently, we had a man a number of years ago who left this church because we had a prayer of confession. He was furious that we had a prayer of confession. We shouldn't have to confess our sins. We're in grace. We left this church, never went to another church. Stopped going to church. Do you know that all around you are people who defy the living God and claim that Jesus makes them do it? They defy the church of Jesus Christ. The church of Jesus Christ is your mother. 
Do you know that Cyprian and Calvin both said, he who will not have the church as his mother may not have God as his father. Do you know that the confessions of the, of the Protestant world say that outside of the church, normally, there's no salvation? And you say, well, normally. That means there can be, and I say, yeah, the Ethiopian eunuch. <laughs> how, how could you get to the point where God, in his kindness, has given you a father who disciplines you, and the minute he goes upstairs to take a nap, you undercut his authority, and you lead the soul of your brother and your son to hell by completely obliterating the discipline his father has put him under. How could you do that? And you say, well, I've submitted to your discipline when you've disciplined me. And I say, that's not good enough. You're support of the actions of the elders is God's plan for the salvation of their soul. Do you see the end? Flip it into five. It says, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Don't tell me you love the people that you're hanging with who have been excommunicated or disciplined or don't have a church. Don't tell me you love them. You don't love them. Because the discipline of the church is what may lead them in the day of the Lord Jesus to have their spirits saved. Don't tell me you love your husband and your son when you undercut the discipline of your son by your husband. You don't love them. You want relationships and you want to forget about the judgment seat of God. Because it's overwhelming. But hey, here's an idea. It's going to come. Don't you want your son to know what's going to happen to him? Don't you want your friends at Lighthouse to know? Why would you lie to them? Now, am I trying to get all of you to become nasty? No, I want you to love them. Love them. Make it plain that it kills you to not be able to hang with them and talk about your relationship with Jesus. Okay. Jesus has given authority to the officers of his church. And he has said that what we bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and what we loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. You know who your elders are. You've chosen them. You know the authority that they have. God has made it clear. You know that that authority is confirmed in heaven, whether it's to bind or to loose, right? You know that. If you... Loose what they bind. God ties himself to the authority of your elders and you loose yourself? No, 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 no. Okay. Let's be done. Okay. Listen, I do love you. I really do love you. You know I love you. 
you have to help the elders. You have to show that Jesus is behind the authority of this church. You have to bind what the elders bind. You cannot lie. It's not right. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, who is sufficient for these things? Father, we're so fearful of having people hate us. We're so fearful of our wives and our husbands and our children. Father, would you please teach us to fear you so that we will not fear man. We pray for the souls who have been excommunicated and disciplined by this church and have defied you by defying the elders here, that you will bring them to repentance. We pray that their time cast on Satan will produce the fruit of their souls being saved. Help us to be faithful in praying for them. Father, help us when we are disciplined not to defy those that you have given the power of the keys to. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.